Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Blender Report, where news meets rational thinking. I'm your host, Jonathan Harvey, and this is your co-host, Liam DeBoer. Liam, what's up, man? Not much, brother. Big day ahead of us here on the list. So we're going to be going over the Epstein drop of the documents that happened last night, the oppressive taxation of the Trudeau regime, climate scientists, and how they are starting to debate the... Uh, validity of a lot of the climate science and bricks by brick so the new eastern alliance that is forming between some superpowers such as china russia south africa and some more countries that are eyeing to get involved in that alliance so before we hop in here if everyone wouldn't mind heading over to our website blendernews.com b-l-e-n-d-r news.com to subscribe to the newsletter that would be great all right let's get into it first off with the epstein list here i thought uh we would just do a little disclaimer as i mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean <laughs> I made a video last night like i put it in the fucking newsletter yeah <laughs> uh, breaking breaking down the uh, first documents to come out of the epstein files here there was there was a crazy one about <laughs> that got leaked into the whole news cycle last night about um, <laughs> Stephen, Hawking. Stephen Hawking. So Stephen Hawking was on the island. There's photos of him there. He was definitely into some freaky shit. But a <laughs> a troll, hey, uh, sneaked in some doctored uh, pictures of the files to make it look like they were part of the legal files, saying that he had a fetish of watching midgets, undressed midgets, struggle to solve complex equations on a chalkboard that was too high up for them. (laughs) You know what, man? Like, I, I, I can't say whether he was or was not into this stuff. All we know is we don't have any unequivocal proof. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's very unlikely, but I'll tell you, it was a bright light in a dark room, so it was kind of funny. Man, but I yeah, did, I could not. I just could not get past the concept. And it is just too much comedy gold that I <laughs> maybe should have set off some radars. Well, a you and I did talk it about it. You and I were like, oh, can we corroborate this? And you're like, actually, a lot of really. You know, credible journalists have posted this, so we're like, all right, let's slip it in there. Yeah, man. It uh, dude, it it was it was all over through through the news cycle in Twitter last night. And yeah, even even a lot of my uh my go-to journalists were posting it. And uh so You I know mean, what? <clears throat> One good thing I will say though, the the positive here is obviously we don't like to report false news, fake news. Um, but we all know that the Epstein the entire Epstein situation is really dark. It's really bad. Not, nothing, nothing good happened there. So even though this is a miss, it's not going to push people the other way to say, oh, well, then the rest of it's false. Yeah. So people will at least be able to identify, go, hey, some internet troll won yesterday. Sorry. Um, but everybody knows that 99.99% of it is true, and this is a dark, this is a dark chapter in, in, in history, and they're not going to go the other way. Like if this was a COVID issue and we, and we highlighted something that was unequivocally false, um, we'd get lit on fire for it. So at least it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, we own our mistake, um, but it doesn't hurt the the actual narrative and it won't stop people from being held accountable for the bad things they did. For sure. And uh, to your credit, to to pump your own, to pump your tires here a bit, I will say 
it's it's refreshing this morning having having that conversation about how we how we missed the ball on that and i was like i've met maybe a couple people in my life that i like argue for responsibility on a fault with (laughs) like usually i i have i have i i try to live by the philosophy of radical responsibility so instead of trying to point the finger at everyone else it's just like take own up for what i can own up for and uh yeah, it was refreshing to finally have somebody kind of give that back because there is a lot of people that'll just be like, that'll just yeah take advantage of that for sure. Ultimate responsibility. That's how you change your life. That's how you change the world. But uh, all right, let's give a little overview of what we do know here. So, following weeks of speculation and eager anticipation, a significant number of names associated with the late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein have been disclosed. These names were revealed as part of the unsealing of documents from a lawsuit initiated by Virginia Guffrey, a former sex trafficking victim of Epstein. The names disclosed in now or in 40 documents now posted without prior redactions include prominent figures such as former presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, Clinton's estranged aide Doug Band, Prince Andrew, the late former New Mexico governor Bill Richardson, and French modeling agent Jean-Luc Brunel, who, like Epstein, passed away while awaiting trial. Epstein's extensive high-profile connections encompassed former U.S. presidents, former prime ministers, Britain's Prince Andrew, Hollywood stars, leading academics, figures from the modeling and fashion industries, and other public figures. Some names were previously known, though other channels, despite being concealed in the lawsuit or sorry, through other channels, despite being concealed in the lawsuit. So what was the, what was the most surprising finding that you, that came by, uh, your, your, uh, thoughts last night? Um, I guess I would say nothing really, (laughs) other than the Stephen Hawking thing that I thought was true. Um, (laughs) nothing really jumps out at me as like the number one thing. They all kind of live in the same realm of like a little bit of holy shit, you know, um, give Trump credit. It looks like he had nothing to do with any of that the sex was, trafficking stuff. That was stuff. actually the big thing for me because yeah. I, I'm just one of those guys where I think that once you are operating at a certain level, you are bound You're to compromised. run shoulder, rub shoulders yep. with certain people. And, you know, uh, according to one of the testimonies, Donald Trump was never on Epstein's Island. Yep. He wasn't seen at his New Mexico or New York residence and uh, which suggests that, yeah, he was not involved with Epstein at all. And then actually, according to CNBC, Donald Trump banned Jeffrey Epstein from his Mar-a-Lago club after Epstein began hitting on another member's daughter. The ban happened months before Epstein pleaded guilty in 2008 to criminal charges in Florida, which included paying for sexual services from a 14-year-old. So, like, it also, it goes to show that he was, he wasn't, just not part of it that he actively like pushed against pushed it. against that's yeah, interesting i'm so. surprised that hasn't come out yet because you know donald trump's his own biggest fan mm-hmm. and you know for me if i were implicated or caught up in this that would be one of the first things i would say i'd be like no i kicked this fucking pervert off the property you know 15 years ago mm-hmm. i would I, I mean that's that's what i would say maybe maybe for some reason he was asked not to he's not really good at keeping his mouth closed maybe this has been out somewhere else you know now that we say this out loud um you know, the other things that kind of caught me, uh, Pritzker, he's, I think Pritzker is going to get eaten alive for this. For um, everyone <clears throat> listening to Pritzker is the chairman of Hyatt Hotels. Yes. He's a um, multi-generational wealth billionaire, well-known, uh, related to governors, other politicians. Like his, this is a, this is a tough one for their family. Um, I think it's going to be a big stain on their family name. 
I would not be surprised if you see this guy lose his gig in the next week or so. Um, but but if, here's the thing. Like, this was already an ongoing case with him and this uh, Virginia Guffrey woman. Um, so whatever trouble he was going to be in legally may not be any different. You know, what, what, I, what I'm seeing here really is now um, like sort of, um, I'm going to call it a public hanging. That's not what it is. But you know what I'm saying when I say that? Where like you're just going to be vilified in the public and you're going to lose all credibility. You're pretty much going to have to run away and hide. Which is what I think is actually going to happen with a lot of these people. You know, I think there's going to be people like, I saw some big names on there and I, I'm, not, I'm not calling this person out. I don't think they were involved necessarily, but I just saw it. Like Leonardo DiCaprio's name was on the list. Mm -hmm. um, I have no idea what his association is with it, but I feel like all these people have the opportunity over the next week or two so to actually, say, uh, right. according to one of the Tepstein, uh, testimonies, <laughs> <Tepstein's>, uh, <laughs> testimonies on Epstein, uh, Epstein quote said there, he would be on the phone a lot at that time and he'd say, oh, that was Leonardo or that was Clay Kate Blanchett or Bruce Willis, that kind of thing. So that yeah. was somebody's testimony that they constantly heard him on the phone with these kind of celebrities. Right. And now that doesn't necessarily lend itself to saying they're implicated. In exactly. Any of the, yeah. So anyway, I think a lot of these people on this list have an opportunity to come out and say something. But anybody that's really tied up in this from a legal perspective, I think they're pretty much pooched. And now is going to be the time that the public decides, uh, bless you. Now's going to be the time the public decides how they're going to be treated. Um, I think that's really the biggest thing. It is nice to see some of these names pop up and some of these people get called out. Uh, I am surprised a little bit that that information came out on Clinton. Um, it, it didn't necessarily implicate him, but it kind of did. Like, look, here, here's the thing. Just Clinton was obviously buddies with the guy um, to some degree. He's been on his island, on his plane a lot. There's no denying it. You know, Epstein, according to the, uh, according to the case... Epstein um, said that he was into younger girls. So it, it, it all points in that direction. But then there's that other, the other issue of Epstein, <laughs> Epstein having a, a large painting of Bill Clinton in his front hallway of Bill Clinton dressed like a woman. Now, imagine one of your friends had a photo of you massively blown up in their like, multi-million dollar condo or apartment in New York at the front door, and it's you dressed up like a woman. What does that mean? That means I've got you by the balls, bitch. That's what that means. So don't forget the other one too. There's another photo that's been floating around for which a while one? of George Bush playing with a paper plane and Jenga towers that have fallen over. Oh come on. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, that that Epstein that that was a painting in Epstein's. That's a weird one. I'm not really sure how I'd connect all that. How I'd connect those dots, but that doesn't look good. No. No. But anyway, I mean, I'm sure this entire thing runs deep. One of the things that actually did catch me. Uh, off guard was, you're going to be able to speak better to this because I know you reported on it. I didn't. I just saw the highlight was the deal he made with the United States government. Yeah. So actually, I just pulled that up here because I was thinking that would be a good thing to dive into. So one of the, this is Eric Weinstein, uh, great intellectual. He was the one. And actually, he's talked about it previously because he was in these circles of um, really, yeah, high up academics that one time Epstein actually approached him and he sat down with Epstein and Epstein was talking about funding certain projects that he was working on and all of this. And he has been very open that that was the only meeting. And he's also gone into great detail about how he could just sense that there was just something evil with this guy from the minute. Like, And even back then, he could kind of tell that it almost seemed like he was trying to get people in on 
on certain things like kind of the blackmailing honeypot kind of the kind of idea like that, it was predatory to begin with yeah he was like i just he was like he's he's like he's one of those guys that as soon as he walked in the room the hair on my the hair on my body just stood up straight and right. i just knew that there was something wrong with this guy but anyways he uncovered a part in that document where it says Epstein also trafficked Jane Doe number three for sexual purposes to many other powerful men, including numerous prominent American politicians, powerful business executives, foreign presidents, a well-known prime minister, and other world leaders. Also, just uh, I should side note there, there's a lot of speculation that that prime minister is ours, um, Justin Trudeau, except there's actually a lot more pointing to the idea that it might be the former prime minister of Israel who oh. has been photographed even going in and out of uh, Epstein's place right. in um, in New York. <clears throat> but anyways... Yeah, I mean, as much as I don't like Trudeau, I don't think the timeline matches up well anyway. Yeah, it no. Really, no. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't where he needed to be to be powerful enough to get into those rooms anyway. Yeah. Anyway, go on. And actually, Mario... Uh, now, Wall, I've never said his name out loud, actually. He's one of the he's one of the journalists that I, I look to on Twitter a lot. And he uh, actually has he's uh, been talking with one of the Jane Doe's in this oh, really? issue. And so he screenshotted a conversation that they had of her saying, look, I can't name who that prime minister was. It's just like I'd fear for my life at that point. But the only hint I'll give is this. And then she put a camel emoji which could point yeah, to Middle the Middle East. East. So yeah, so who is a prime minister in the Middle East? So things are kind of lining up maybe that that was, that that makes was sense. who I think, who yeah, I, I, Daisy to. chain that together, I'd say you're probably, I'd say 90% confident. Yeah, yeah. so, but uh, but who knows? We'll, um, hopefully we find out. But uh, anyways, to continue on here, Epstein required Jane Doe number three to describe the events that she had with these men so that he could potentially blackmail them. The government was well aware of Jane Doe number three when it was negotiating the NPA. So that means a non-prosecution agreement as it listed her as a victim in the attachment to the NPA. Moreover, even a rudimentary investigation of Jane Doe's uh, number three's relationship to Epstein would have revealed the fact that she had been trafficked throughout the United States and internationally for sexual purposes. Nonetheless, the government secretly negotiated a non-prosecution agreement with Epstein, precluding any federal prosecutions in the Southern District of Florida of Epstein and his co-conspirators. So, like, that just points to this whole idea that this is an intelligence operation. 100%. Like, I, I, seeing that on it, throughout these documents, like, I mean, it, it was pretty clear that Epstein wasn't just acting on his own. Yeah. And it, throughout all of this it just it would the whole narrative never made sense but now that you see this kind of stuff that they're that they were essentially giving them legal immunity i don't know how you come to any other conclusion than that well i'd say there's one other way this could be uh this could have played out so the only other just to play devil's advocate the way this could have played out is he could have started i don't think so but he could have started this whole scheme on his own and then he could have implicated enough people within the government to then bend their arm to say hey Here's how this is going to play out because you're all implicated in this. Mm -hmm. So then they would do that. It's just, you know, versus the other way around. Versus it being a targeted plan, them going to Epstein, Epstein honeypotting people for blackmail. Epstein was doing this because that's actually not a bad model if you're thinking from the government's perspective. This is dark, but I'm just going to be honest. If you're looking at it from a strategic perspective as the government, you're looking for people that are honeypotting these, these, these crucial members of society so you can blackmail them. 
right? And as soon as you see a guy that's got that kind of racket going on, it's almost like drug dealing. Like you can bring them under your you can bring them under your wing and then they just inform for you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So once this guy has this racket going, then the government goes, "Okay, you've implicated some of us, got it. Now you're on our radar." And then they start working together to be like, "I need you to do this guy." Then they start targeting people as a group. So they almost would have picked up Epstein after he started down this dark path because they're like, well, the guy's already got the infrastructure. He's already doing it, and we got him dead to rights. So let's make him work for us, and let's make him implicate people that we want so that we can get what we need out of these other people. For sure. That's actually that's a, a reasonable way. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way it went, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because here, here's why I say this. Epstein, his interest in young women and what he was doing with this, that's not something normal people or everybody has. So you can't really target someone to say, hey, man, I got this plan for you. Because if you say that to me, I'd be like, hey, dude, I'm going to kick the shit out of you for that. <laughs> like, let's just, all right, let's just fight. That, that would kind of be my response, you know, um, especially, you know, for a lot of these people that have kids. They'd be like, are you fucked, dude? So you have to have a guy that's a little bit fucked in the head to do this, being Epstein. So I'm of the mind that he was already moving in that direction, showed himself to the government by implicating some of their people, and then they jumped in and were like, hey, one or the other. Either you're working for us or you're fucked. So I, I don't know. That, that, to me, actually makes more sense. Yeah, I, I still probably lean towards the idea that he was embedded in intelligence beforehand, that he was an intelligence agent of some sort, and then that he essentially just became the, the guy that they built this whole thing around. Because even when you look at the, uh, where the origin of his financial success it's pretty pretty sketchy. There's not a lot there, essentially. Uh, all of us, it was just one of those things where, like, all of a sudden, he's this baller player out of nowhere, and it's yeah. like, all right, well, where did he get all of this money? Well, I hope we get the answers to this because it's interesting to see which side this may have started on. Yeah, man, for sure. All right, well, let's head on to the next topic here. So, Trudeau, the tax man. Here's where Canadians will be paying more federal tax in 2024. So, brace yourselves, Canadians. Your wallets are in for a tighter grip in 2024. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation paints a stark picture of a multi-pronged tax offense with increases seemingly everywhere you turn. From your paycheck and gas pump to your evening drink in online shopping, expect to contribute more. Payroll taxes are set to bite deeper with increased contributions to both CPP and EI, Those earning an average wage or more can expect a combined tax hike of $300. Employers will feel this too. Commuting costs are also destined to skyrocket as the federal carbon tax soars from $65 to $80 per ton, translating to an extra $12.32 per fill-up for a minivan. While rebates are touted, a parliamentary budget officer uh, report sheds light on the harsh reality average household will still be shelling out between $377 to $911 annually. And it doesn't stop there. Alcohol taxes are joining the party with a 4.7% inflation-linked increase, pushing the price of your favorite beer, wine, and spirits even higher. Even the digital realm isn't spared. The new digital services tax aims at big tech giants like Google and Facebook, but brace for potential hikes as the burden is always passed on to consumers. Quote, an economic impact assessment of the French digital services tax shows that about 55% of the total tax burden will be passed on to consumers, 40% to online vendors, and only 5% borne by the digital companies targeted by the new tax, according to the Tax Foundation. 
Overall, Canadians face a complex web of tax increases in 2024. While the government justifies some changes for retirement security and environmental goals, their immediate impact on household budgets cannot be ignored. The average family already coughs up over 46% of their income in taxes, while Trudeau promises to tighten that grip even further in 2024. So, man, there's just so much to go on there. But the idea that this man can stand on a stage and say that he's trying to make life more affordable for Canadians is just a level of manipulation that I can hardly comprehend. Yeah, that's what happens when you control the media, though, right? You can say mm -hmm. whatever you want and convince people um, that they need to continue chipping in, which is what he said the other day, which blew my mind. He goes, hey, Canada, we're progressing and things are great. We just need you to keep chipping in so we can keep going down this path. Like, nobody wants to be on this path. Like, I go over this a lot, but, like, housing prices double. Rent doubles. Groceries are up 277%. Gas is up 40%. And it's going to continue going up. You're getting hit with taxes. You're getting hit with inflation. No matter where you look, this country is becoming unaffordable. And this guy's approach is, we need more of your money to fix the problems we created. Now, I know these numbers are going to be a little off, but back in the time when they had like kings and serfs and stuff like that, you know, uh, kings and peasants, I think like 30% was like the top tax. That's as much as you'd lose to the king, which is a lot, which is a lot. But now the average family is losing 46. If you're a top earner in this country and you spend half your money, which means the reason I say half your money is because you can't, um, you can't recoup HST. If you do that, then you're pretty much losing, you know, 65% of your dough. You're losing two thirds of the money you make. That is why. That means you work until September just to get any of your own money. This country is wildly out of control. This makes absolutely no sense. And what I don't like is they do a lot of these things to increase taxes in ways that are rel relatively devious. Like they make these adjustments on things that aren't obvious, that it's like, oh, cool, we've got another 100 million there, another 300 million there, another billion there. And that's just kind of how they play their game. But you, and you don't feel it because it feels like pocket change. Someone goes, well, you know, if I'm an average wage earner and my EI and CPP will go up 300 bucks, that's not the end of the world. Well, it is when you probably have 25, work, 25 million working Canadians. That's a big number. Um, you also have to consider the fact that the, the employers have to match this as well. It's actually higher for EI. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure of the figure, but it's, it's about 20% higher for EI for the employers. You're going, how can, young, how can small businesses stay in business? Um, if these numbers continue to pile up, if, if you have to keep raising your prices and you're pricing yourself out of the market, no one can afford your goods because of all the increase in taxes. It doesn't make sense. This thing is a runaway train under Trudeau. He's got no idea how to fix these problems and all he's doing it is making it worse for Canadians. So, Yeah, and to go to the idea that, you know, I talk about this frequently with Agenda 2030 and how it seems like a global socialist agenda, and the, uh, you know, you look at some of the top thinkers, there's, there's a quote that was, whether it was falsely attributed to Lenin or not, uh, you know, the Marxist revolutionary that led the communist revolution in Russia, it's, the quote can't be uh, confirmed as it was essentially a game of telephone that he said it to an interviewer off the record and the interviewer said that he said it. But anyways, Lenin said that the way to crush the bourgeoisie is through oppressive taxation and inflation. So, like, to your point about how can small businesses survive, the answer is they can't. No. It, it, it's, it's impossible at this point. Or even just look at not even small businesses aside. Look at just 
families, like households. We've broke down this number before when it comes to buying a house where, you know, 30% of the cost of a house is already soft costs that go to the government, like permits and such. But then, you know, 60% of the plus of the average salary has to go towards paying the mortgage. And then the rest of their income goes towards taxes. It's gone. It's just... Like, well, actually, based on the... Then I remember the numbers. 46% is the average taxation for the family. That's what it, that's what yep. it is. 66% is the average amount in Canada that is going from a family to their mortgage. Yeah, so, so do the math. Over 100. You're already over... Exactly. Yeah. So you're, you're already going into debt every month just to try to stay alive. And I don't know like, if their solution is, hey, let's bring in the, you know, the universal basic income. Guys, look, I've been over this. There's no good way to cover the cost of this program. Taxes just have to go up. There's nowhere to grab this from. Yeah. Look what they're doing now with all these fill-in small taxes to make up this room. There's no way, like, you're not going to be like, well, we'll just charge the rich. They'll leave the country. It's the economic <clears throat> equivalent of taking a, a uh, extension plug for a, uh, a power bar, essentially, and plugging it into itself and <laughs> expecting <laughs> yeah. it to work. Like, <laughs> No, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good analogy. Like, it's, the thing is, he just keeps, like, this is the perfect example of a guy blowing hot air into an economy just trying to sneak by long enough until he can run for re-election. That's what this is, because all he's trying to do is not wear the devastating blow to the economy on his face. Yeah. That's how I see this, right? Like, I was reading something the other day that's like, look, you can manipulate the numbers any way you want. Canada's already in a recession, and it's going to continue through most of this year. And, you know, you get this idea, and I, I want to I highlight this, because I don't want people to have false hope. They're saying that we may drop the interest rates on homes. Now... This is a this is a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. If you raise if you if you keep the interest rates where they are, people currently can't afford their homes. If you lower the interest rates, then no one else can enter the market because you're going to see a surge in home prices again because we have a major we have our our production of homes is super low with our immigration being super high and we're never really going to catch up. So, if they do this, what's going to happen is they're going to lower interest rates for a quarter and they're going to have to bring them back up to quell the housing prices again because the limits because the uh, the limited number of homes that are available this is not going to be a good solution so when people are seeing this in the news this is not an indication of things getting better this is an indication of them going oh shit how do we balance the scales right now because we've increased interest rates so much that if we don't soften them a bit too many people are going to lose their homes that's going to create a massive economic chain reaction but as soon as we do this we're going to have to be very careful because the housing prices are going to go back up and it's going to create a surge in the other direction. They are in a very, very dangerous spot right now, walking a tightrope. And it's one way or another they're going to get burned. I just don't know when, how soon it's going to happen. I don't know how long they can manipulate the market and play this game, but it's going to come knocking pretty fucking soon. Well, and something that makes me always scratch my head is you talk about this kind of stuff and then people that are sympathetic, you know, more towards the socialist ideologies or government intervention in any in any manner they'll point to well what do you think you can live without taxes first of all maybe <laughs> and, <laughs> but secondly like are we what what is your line to sit there and go yeah. this is too much because America was founded on the principle that they were unhappy with a very small it was like two or three percent tax on oh. tea, and they were just like, "Nope, you're taxing our tea two percent. Like, we're fuck you. We're starting our own shit." Yeah. And I look at this now, and I go, "How is this not this at is that criminal. level? This yeah. is criminal." And in two, where 
I sit here and I say to people, it's like Canada in specific, when they when they like all say something along the lines of we're already a socialist country, like we're on the path. We're not on the path to socialism. We're already at socialism and we're on the path to communism. People are like, oh, well. You're too. You're you're blowing it out of proportion there. It's, you're not. It's just wearing a different Again. hat, so people can't identify it. It's in disguise. Yeah, hundred percent, dude. And it's, it's like boiling fifty percent of your shit is gone. Yeah, just just gone. And this, you know, this is the libertarian idea of taxation is theft. But I I saw a good breakdown of it the other day as well, where it's like it's actually more than theft because they're not just robbing you. They're it's it's extortion because they're they're saying if you don't allow us to rob you, we'll throw you in jail. So it's 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 worse than robbery. <laughs> yeah, it's true, man. Uh, I feel like the, the the situation in Canada and much of the West and much of these heavily taxed nations, Canada is the worst holistically. Overall, it's the most taxed nation in the world. People argue that income tax is higher either here or there or whatever. When you take all taxes into consideration, Canada is the worst in the world, and we continue to increase. But I think it's the boiling frog situation. We all got into some water. It was 5%, 10%, 20%. Now the average is 46%. After this year, it'll probably be closer to 50%. It's just, it continues, they just, the water keeps getting warmer, and because it's so gradual, people aren't noticing. And like you said, though, when do people push back? Now seems like a good time. We can't afford to live. The only people that can't afford to live, apparently, are the public service workers that are continuing to be paid more and more money, and that has continued to expand. Did you know, under Trudeau, this is a wild statistic, under Trudeau, since 2015, the federal workforce has grown from 257,000 to 357,000. It's grown 40%. That is fucking wild. And what are they doing? What are they improving? Absolutely nothing. It's just more red tape and more bureaucracy. This guy's out to fucking lunch. And people need to start paying attention. And you and I talk about this all the time. Like, I rip this guy because everything he does is absolutely terrible. But when is enough enough? Like, where is that line? Or have we just been, have we just been, I don't, I don't know what the right word is. Like, have we just been subdued in such a way that we don't have the fight in us anymore. And maybe that's happened. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think this goes back to the idea, I've been talking about this online a little bit over the last week or so, is that most people don't want freedom, man. Most people want a master. And it's the idea that, you know, it's an old Freudian idea that freedom requires responsibility and most people are terrified of responsibility. They want somebody to come in and say, you know, hey, this is this is the path where we've got it all figured out. Just do what we say and everything will be okay. And I think a lot of people take that philosophy to the extreme to the point where they will even do that with their paycheck. They're just like, just take all my money as long as you give me what I need back. Like as long as you know better. And I think it goes I think it goes pretty deep into that. And then too, a lot of people are afraid of being called selfish of saying of like if if they take a stance against say taxes they'll that they'll be called well yeah that they're only looking out for themselves they don't care about the the lower rungs of society and I'll point to a Thomas Sowell quote of about this where he said you know it, it's weird to me that the people who want to keep their money are the selfish ones when I have never figured out what my fair share of somebody else's money is Yo, that's tight. That's such a good way of looking at it. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you're telling me I'm selfish for wanting to keep the products of what I worked for. Yeah. How are you not selfish for wanting to, to have take what mine. I want? Yeah. Like, and, and two, and, and this goes back to the idea as well that, like, you have to show me that these things are working first. You can't just say that 
taxes are a good thing because they help people. You have to show me how they're helping people. And I remember having this conversation with somebody in uh, that was close to me. I won't implicate because <laughs> they were trying to go. Uh, they were trying to push me on this idea of taxes being a good for society. And, you know, how would we get the roads and the schools and all this kind of stuff without them? And I asked, I said to them, I said, I know that you tried to go through, and I'm sure they do it 100% legally, everybody, that they try to circumvent every single tax loophole they can. Everybody should. And I looked at them and I said, I know that you try to save as much as you possibly can on your taxes every year. Yeah. If you believed that this was actually some magical good thing for society, why would you be acting that way? Why wouldn't you just pay more? Yeah, and I could tell that it clicked in their head at that moment that they're just like, oh, oh. I've got a cognitive dissonance going on yeah. here of realizing that this money should be in my hands. I don't like that these people can take it, but I'm almost trying to comfort myself that they're taking it with this false notion yeah. that it's beneficial for other people. I mean, they run a good racket, right? Because they get... They get Hundreds and hundreds of billions, I think six or seven hundred billion dollars a year in Canada is how much they, they take in. Um, they spend more, yet they accomplish nothing, and there's no accountability. I don't understand how this happened. I don't understand how we decided there was no accountability for politicians. I'll tell you why I think it's really strange. Well, other than it's, it's, it's absolutely nonsense. You have, there, there's no real qualification to be a politician. You know, if you're going to go do something else, like a, be a plumber or astrophysicist or whatever, whatever it is you're going to be. You know, there's, there's certain qualifications you need, education you need to be able to execute the job, and now you're responsible for what happens. With politicians, there is no specific path you need to follow to get the job. Therefore, they should be under far more scrutiny. Far more. Everybody should be paying attention to the guy that doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, who's in charge of everybody. It makes no sense. But instead, we just give them more money than any... In, like, it's godly amounts of money and just say, do whatever you want to do with it, and you're not accountable. What kind of talking, what, what kind of system is this? It makes no sense. It seems that people have forgotten that the whole idea of our government is that they work for us. And that's to your point where it's just like, they should be facing immense scrutiny from every single one of us. Yeah. And like, people, people often forget this too. Did, maybe, I don't know, did you know this, that... The day before 9-11, the Pentagon released, it failed its audit again and couldn't account for trillions yes. of dollars. Yeah. Name me one entity in the world that could lose trillions of dollars and not even face the littlest scrutiny for it. Okay, so the interesting thing about the Pentagon is so they do internal audits every year. The Pentagon has failed like every fucking year. They can't keep track of their money. They have no idea what's going on. Someone can look into that and they can verify this. But I think it's like the last eight or nine years in a row failed every time. And they're like, yeah, but we're making improvements. No, you're not. You're failing miserably. Like all of your, you have no idea what the fuck is happening under your roof. And you've got the largest budget in the United States. What, how can you, how, how, how is this acceptable? How is this acceptable? Like, I understand why people want to go work for the government. I get it. Because you can do whatever the fuck you want and make money. And no one's accountable for anything. It is so mental, man. And this goes back to the concept that they aren't, they, they, they don't have any consequences in any of these actions because if they fail to solve the problem, well, it's, they, they won't face those consequences. Whatever the problem is, it, like they won't face the consequences of not solving it. 
And then also the money that they put into it is not theirs. So they don't even bear the financial burden of, uh, of the problem. And the thing is, this even, this even goes for things that they think they're doing properly, right? And obviously when they fuck things up, yes, you see the collateral damage, you see all the money that was burned. But take COVID, for example. I, I believe that some of the politicians thought they were doing the right thing. We're doing the right thing. Still getting paid and got raises and bonuses, but they shut down every business in Canada, most, most businesses in Canada, hundreds of thousands shut down because of the decisions these people made. It was the wrong decision. No accountability. So even when they think they're doing the right thing, people get fucked. Like you said, the idea of government, the whole purpose of government is to help society get better, is to be a helping hand so that you and I can thrive and make this country a better place. Not be its biggest burden. That's all it is. It I actually be- think government only has two functions. One, establish borders and protect them, which means some sort of military, and that's where I would um, go into, like, okay, there can be taxes for that purpose yep. of funding a military to establish and protect our borders. And two, to uphold property rights. Okay. See, I think, that, I think one of the things that we can use them for is um, infrastructure. So I do actually believe that it's a good system for them to be managing simple things like your roads, your garbage, your snow removal, that kind of stuff on, on like public properties, just on public properties. I, I think there's a good way to work that in. Um, not necessarily like I, I could be negotiated with, but I think that would be, I think that's a reasonable one. Yeah. I, it's interesting. Like I think that there's a space in a perfect world. I think there's a good space for the being a public and private sector for a lot of things, but they've just completely taken over anything that's within their, their, their reach. You know what I mean? I think that's, what's making this so egregious. It's just, yeah, it's disgusting. The level we really of, hate the government. We, like, <laughs> as we're talking, I'm like, well, I could just continue talking about how much I hate them. That's wonderful. Any, any, I look at anybody that loves the government, though, or thinks the government is a net positive. I look at it as maybe a necessary evil because the alternative is that... Potentially chaos. Well, potentially chaos, but you know, I've likened the government to the mafia before where it's I like, do it all the time. Yeah, where it's... they a lot of the times they'll instill the fear and then sell the protection of that neighborhood. But then, you know, you look at the alternative, would you rather deal with one immoral institution or unknown amounts of small pockets of, say, roaming little militias or mafias? And you go, well, at least I can deal, like, at least if it's one party, I can deal with them and negotiate with them. Like, I don't have to spend all my time negotiating with one group and then all of a sudden another group comes along and starts trying to extort me and like the negotiation process can't be had but to me i'm just like so okay maybe government is a necessary evil but it doesn't mean that we should take this favorable view of it that we should like we need to understand the nature of it to be able to properly negotiate with it if you sit down at a business negotiation no matter what it is, if you don't know what the other party is looking for in the negotiation, you've already lost. You've lost those negotiations. So you need to understand that what the government wants is more control and more resources. Yep. That's it. That's just like a They're corporation. They're commoditizing us. That's all this is. Just like a corporation's only goal is to, in, uh, to raise shareholder profit, the government's only goal is to centralize power. Yes. So that, to me, I'm like, you need to understand that fundamental aspect of nature, or sorry, of of government, in order to negotiate with it properly. Otherwise, we're going to end up in this world that we already have, where it's like, 
well, the the government can fix every issue in society, and we're just going to defer all responsibility to them to fix those issues. Yeah, you know what's interesting, actually, I if you look through history, I think for the most part, when these things would happen, the empire would fall. Someone gets their fucking head cut off. See you later. Um, we just don't live in those times anymore in the Western world. And I think they've done a good job to convince everybody that they're too civilized. I'm not suggesting we cut anybody's heads off, but they're, we're too civilized. <laughs> well, we're too civilized for, let's call it a soft revolution. We're too civilized to start like implementing all these checks and balances on the government to say, hey, like here's a private organization. We're coming after you for all this stuff. Here's a collective public fund of people going, all right, it's time to start holding the government accountable. And then we start implementing some set of rules to start mitigating or minimizing the amount of power they have or holding them responsible or doing things that can start squeezing them because all they continue to do is expand. But we're told or we're convinced at scale we're too civilized for that. Like you said, we're just doing the right thing. We're just doing our part. We're selfish if we don't want to do it. But I, I think we're getting to this point that this, the number of people that feel the way we feel is continuing to grow. and. Obviously, I don't know what's going to make this bubble burst, but I hope it happens sooner than later. Well, dude, once my idea is like, and it doesn't mean that I have no empathy for the people that have lived in poverty their entire lives, but to them, there isn't much change when things like this come, uh, come along. Right. There's, they've, they've always struggled to find food, so they expect that the future is just going to hold more struggles and more hunger, all of that kind of stuff. Right. But when, when we're getting into the point now where middle-class families, which have done everything the way that they thought they were supposed to, which was, I went to school. I got this high-paying job. I've paid my dues. Yep. I was told that if I did this, that I'd be, I'd be in a good spot. When those people en masse yep. start not being able to put food on the table for their kids and their family, yep. the idea of a revolution could turn real quick. You know, it's interesting, some middle-class stats that I was looking at. 83% uh, of Canada thinks they're in the middle class. 15% um, of them can't keep up with their monthly bills. 47% believe they're going to have trouble paying their, their, their home or mortgage or rental costs in the next month. I think it's just, I think it's between those two figures. That's the one figure I forget is um, specifically that are basically living paycheck to paycheck. So to your point, we are getting very close to the edge of that cliff. Yeah. So I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right. Tried to uh, cram the last two topics in here in the last 15 minutes, but uh, climate scientists, the case for embracing higher levels of CO2. So a recent report from Oxford Academics Bioscience warns that the Earth has entered, quote unquote, uncharted territory and life is now under siege due to escalating concentrations of carbon dioxide. The authors emphasize the urgent need for a faster phase-out of oil, coal, and fossil fuels to prevent water and food shortages, as well as extreme heat affecting a significant portion of the world's population. So those findings there alone, before I continue on with this article, ridiculous. Because you phase out oil, coal, and fossil fuels, you're immediately going to have water and food shortages. Everyone's going to die. So I'm <laughs> sorry. That's the that's what happens. So getting taking those phasing those out to prevent water and food shortages just ridiculous concept on its own. And then, as well as extreme heating affecting a significant portion of the world's population, extreme cold affects ten times more people than extreme heat does. Extreme heat is not to say that it's not a problem, but cold is way worse 
Way more people die. Yeah, from I wish people cold. would look into st- these statistics on the number of deaths that happen based on cold weather versus warm weather every year. Even I in wish India. they would look. Yeah, like people people do not pay enough attention to that because it's not highlighted. But your number at 10x is about bang on. Yeah, well, there was a good point about why that might be. In uh, I believe it was unsettled. It might have been false false alarm. Those books, but um, they were saying about how cold typically kills people over the span of weeks. Heat can kill them through dehydration within a matter of days. I looked at these figures from like five, 10 years ago on a government website. Yeah. And, and it was, the, the numbers were mirrored. They were pretty much, you said they're basically 10 X. So if you do some research from credible sources, it's pretty significant. Yeah. And people just are not aware of it. They're not, it's just, I, I get it. I understand that there's, there's this alarmism and there's this paying attention to the media and all these things they're throwing at you. But yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, anyways. Yeah. So however, not all scientists share this perspective. Patrick Moore chairman and chief scientist of EcoSense Environmental and co-founder of Greenpeace, dismisses climate change as a quote-unquote total scam, arguing that there's no scientific evidence linking CO2 to climate change over the decades. Moore contends that the climate message has shifted from global cooling to global warming and now disastrous weather, and challenges the assertion that CO2 is the primary cause of extreme weather events. Climatologist John Christie points out that weather-related deaths and climate disasters have significantly decreased over the years, challenging the narrative that CO2 is causing more intense and frequent extremes. So to touch on that, a couple things here. If we are to believe that CO2 is the, um, the driver of the warming of the climate, it makes zero sense that the climate cooled from the periods of 1940 to 1970, which were also the one of the most rapid developments in industrialization in human history, if not the most. So it doesn't add up that those ex- its exact correlation between CO2 emissions and higher temperatures. And then on the other aspect of climate disasters, it's not just that they've significantly decreased, it's that they've almost gone non-existent. Like 90, over 100 years, the climate or deaths due to extreme weather events have dropped by 96%. We're talking about from 500,000 people a year. And that's also when the population was a lot lower. Right. To nowadays, it's roughly 20,000 people a year. Right. So one thing, though, one thing I would have to highlight there is our technology to be able to forecast incoming um, storms and stuff like that has improved substantially. Like we Mm -hmm. do hurricane watch every year. We know when shit is going to hit the fan. For sure. So people can be more prepared and we have better technology, better, safer homes, all these other things. We have better protocols, better healthcare. So, I mean, even if you take all the things I just said and say that the number of deaths is square by by the differences um, of a technology, still not a huge, like it still doesn't add up to, to what they're saying, right? Yeah, but look, adaptation is a massive part about our strength as humans. Sure. That is the number one strength that we as humans have, which is we adapt to our environment like crazy. Yeah. Think about it. You've got people living way up there in Nunavut, in uh, essentially in ice for their entire lives. And then you've got people in sub-Saharan Africa living in dry-ass deserts for their entire life. For sure. Like we're extremely adaptable to our scenario. But it's like, look, if there's a if there's a problem like weather events, it doesn't mean that weather of weather events themselves have become non-existent. It's that the threat they pose 
is way lower than we would ever have throughout right, human history. Right. What would be what? Do you know what the number of um, extreme weather events though is by by volume in comparison? So I don't know about the exact number. However, I can quote the IPCC reports. The, they're the AR five reports, which again the IPCC is the International Panel on Climate Change, which is the division that's tasked uh, by the UN to do all of this science. Even them themselves have said in those uh, documents that there has been no, uh, they have low confidence, which means there's less than a 10% um, uh, likelihood yep. that there is a trend in droughts, floods, or hurricanes. Okay. So they basically have no idea. They're sitting there going, Look, we're we're dealing with the best that we can throughout human history yep. of trying to figure out what this stuff but looks like. No but idea. we we no, they have no we don't have confidence. They're, they're just they're just it's just basically it's um smoke and mirrors essentially. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I would say that I don't think we do enough is let's pay attention to who we're listening to. The guy that founded Greenpeace. I'm not sure about his education, but obviously he spent his whole life in this space. You know, you have these um, climatologists. You have people that do this for a living. They have the education in it, and they're raising red flags. So you know. Um, are they right? Are they wrong? I think you need to put more weight on people's opinions that have the education and have the experience. And I, I think I said this last podcast. If this is even half as bad as the media presents to us, why don't they just show us unequivocal, unequivocal evidence that proves that it's that bad? Because then all these people that are saying this stuff, they'll just be proved wrong. And then people like you and I can get on the right side in quotes of the issue. But without any of that proof, it just makes them seem like they're full of shit pushing this media campaign, which more than likely seems to be the truth. Yeah. And what's crazy is there was actually a while back, Rogan did back-to-back -back episodes of somebody, Steve Coonan, which is uh, the, one of the authors of the books that I've mentioned on this podcast before called Unsettled, where he breaks down all of these, um, these reports, the IPCC reports. And... Then he brought on, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was a professor at the University of Texas, and he was very alarmist about climate change. He, right. he, and he was saying that climate change is 100% humans' faults. Uh, and so, but then Rogan asked him at one point during the interview, he said, okay, have you listened to the podcast I did with Steve the other day? And he yeah. said, he said, yeah, I, I listened. And he goes, what did he say in there that was wrong? What did he say in that podcast that was false? The guy said, so everything he said was true. And I, I can't refute any of the things that he said, but it's just, I think he's only telling one side of the story, which may be, but the very fact that you look at somebody that sits there and like unapologetically is like, this is all bullshit. Yeah. And then you say, I can't refute anything he said in that podcast. There goes your argument. What are we doing? That's what I mean. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be a lot of strong support um, showing that this is this is going to be a significant impact for humans. There just isn't. You know what I mean? They just continue to highlight this information, and I think they just continue to use the media as their weapon of choice to basically use it as a tool of suppression, yep. a tool of taxation, a tool of control. And I don't see this going away anytime soon because they don't have a COVID or something similar to keep us in line. So, And, you know, this goes back to, to something uh, a, a great a great thought which is 
I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. And that is what a lot of this narrative is all about. I'm not sitting here saying I have the unequivocal uh, answers to this whole problem or anything, but I'm sitting here just going, I don't know what to believe, but it looks like you guys are lying. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, to get to the bottom of this, you have to have rigorous debate. You have to be able to ask the questions. You have to be able to look at actual science. You want to be able to look at data and compare it to maybe the guy on the other side of the aisle. Be like, okay, well, what do you have that I don't have? How are you? Why are you seeing this way, this in a particular way? And why are you seeing it in another? And and like you said, you're looking at the IPCC, and they're like, well, we're not really less than 10% likely that there's any correlation here. That's really flawed data. Mm-hmm. Like what anything they have on their side seems to be easy to break down, easy to disprove. And anyone on the side saying, hey, you guys are being alarmist about this, and it's not that serious. There's no nothing to refute. Yeah. So what are we doing here? I, I don't understand. The only thing is, like you We're said, participating in stupidity. Well, it's a fucking charade again. Like I've been using this word a lot lately. It's just this charade where you can't ask questions. It's like an incendiary topic that if you ask a question, you're an idiot. You're a bigot. You're a whatever it is. You're a conspiracy theorist. Look, I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. I'm all for saving humanity, whatever that means. But right now, this whole climate agenda seems to be politically charged, and honestly, nothing else. Yeah. All right, so last quick topic of the day here. Bricks by brick, the Eastern Alliance doubles, accounting for 25% of the world's GDP. So BRICS, the economic alliance of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, has significantly expanded its reach by welcoming five new members, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. This move, announced by Russian President Vladimir Putin, has assumed BRICS, or sorry, who has assumed BRICS leadership over the year, aims to bolster the group's strategic influence and counter Western dominance in global affairs. With those, with these new additions, BRICS has boosted its global influence, now representing a collective population exceeding 2.5 billion in a combined GDP surpassing 16 trillion. And apparently, there are 20 additional countries that are seeking membership with another 20 giving it serious consideration. So what's your thoughts on the new alliances being formed? Yeah, I mean, this is just the gentrification, in a sense, of the Eastern Bloc, right? This is going to be the primary economic um, group that is going to grow out of the East to challenge the West. And they said it flat out, like, hey, we're doing this to challenge the West. We're doing this to challenge the superpowers that are currently in place. Um, You know, it's, it's interesting I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing, you know. Um, well, being free market type of people, you need competition. Right. And, and look, like, there are always going to be people that see the world a different way. And you've got these different parts of the world. And I, I, I want to I identify something, and people might give me some shit for it, but I think it's important. We look at places like, like, don't get me wrong, right now, Russia invading Ukraine, that's bad. But take that out of the equation for a moment. Um, the way that people live in Russia, the way that people live in China, okay, you're going to complain about the way that they treat their citizens. How do you feel being treated here? 50% of your money goes to your government. They just tell you it's good. You know, you look at what's happening in the United States, 131st on the Global Peace Index out of 163 countries. Shit's not good there either. All I'm saying is there are different ways to live and every country's got its problems. And, you know, by these things sort of separating, people are sort of finding their own group and they're going to continue to work with those people. This is an economic group. Their intention here may be nefarious in some ways, just like so is the West's, right? Um, But it's good that these groups are working together because I actually think it's going to create more global stability once it shakes out. I really do. 
But I also think you're going to see a big shakeup in the G20. A lot of the countries that are currently in the G20 that are also a part of BRICS, I imagine, I could be wrong, uh, but I imagine they're going to step out of their G20 membership over the next 5, 10 years as BRICS continues to expand. Now, BRICS is currently 10. There's 20 people that have officially requested membership. There's another 20 that are considering it. So even if, even if 20 more of them join in the next five years, you've got a group of 30, you get a shake-up in the G20, and that's what you have. You have these, these economic pacts, these groups that are going to work together. Like, you know, these free trade agreements and these things, if they're done properly, they are effective. You know, like I know that U.S. is now giving discounts to Mexico because they're a part of the gang. The same thing with Japan. They're a part of the gang. This is just the same idea. You know, they're going to try to create, they're going to try to build their own puzzle where they're going to say, look, we don't get along with you over there. You guys see the world a different way. You know, sure, some's bad, sure, some's good. We're going to go with our guys, and we're going to create some sort of economic stability, an economic system where we can trade goods and play this game within our own group. I think it's going to create some stability on both sides. I think it's just going to be a bit of a problem getting there. Well, I think it's going to force the West here to course correct, because if you look at a lot of these developing nations, if they're up and coming and looking who to partner with, when, you know, on one hand, you've got the Russia and China's of the world, the, the BRICS alliance, or... You're sitting there going, all right, I've got the Western world with uh, America and the UK kind of leading the charge on that. If your options are go with the people that will give me access to cheap energy, such as oil and coal, all of this kind of stuff. Yep. Like, look, I just need energy. My people just need energy. Yes. And then on the other hand, you've got the Western alliances, which are saying, look, we'll give you energy, but it's going to be super expensive and also inefficient, sustainable energy. It's like you have to come on board with these. And you have to buy into all of our ideology. You're going to sit here and what? just go, all right, well, it's the clear choice for me. I'm sitting here in poverty. I'm sorry. I'm not, uh, I'm not super concerned about the climate 150 or years from now right your, now. Your gender agenda. My Don't population care. is starving. Yep then they're clearly going to be pushed in the hands of the yep. Eastern alliances. And I think this might put a little bit of pressure on the Western world to then go, all right, I think we're being a little bit too tyrannical. We're pushing this whole yep. agenda too hard with this, these sustainable development goals because energy is energy. I don't think people realize how crucial energy Paramount is. Paramount to the success of any society. It yeah. is so important. Yeah. And people, like you said, people just, they, they take it for granted because they always have it. Yeah. But no, it is, it is so crucial, especially for developing nations, getting it at a very low cost. That's how you build your economy. That is the number one driver of building an, uh, of a, of a low-end economy is cheap energy. Yeah. That's the only way you build it. Yeah. That is it. Yeah. So for people not to recognize that, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And like, I, I really agree with your point. I think that's a really good way of putting it, is not only is the West going to have to correct, correct course, but until now, we've basically had this pseudo one world government, you know, all the different G groups, all the different summits, the UN, all this other stuff, right? So you have no one to answer to and you're always in first place. But now that you're getting this other group that's coming up out of the East going, we don't like the way you've been doing things. Now the West has to become a more, like it has to be a more appealing partner because now you're competing with the other side, right? And the thing is right now, it's still easy enough for guys like you and I to move to Dubai if we wanted to, which I know a lot of young entrepreneurs are doing. So you kind of look at this and you go, not only are they going to have to correct course, they're going to have to start competing at the same game the same way, or they're going to start losing not only people, but nations and partnerships and alliances. So yeah, I mean, overall, I know people may identify this as a problem. I think it's actually really good for the market. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this just goes back to those principles of free market 
cap- capitalism, which is, I think, the single greatest invention that humans have ever come up with, which has allowed us to develop at the rate that we have. Yep. And that's why competition itself is a good thing. It's so important. I just feel like people don't realize that you need incentive. People yeah. are just, this whole socialist program thing, you got to realize that's sucking the life out of society. Communism sucks the life out of society. If there is no incentive to improve, no incentive to progress, why are we even here? Because if you look at humans, if you're an alien and you look at humans and you had to say, what do these things do? They progress. Look at an iPhone today versus 20 years ago. It was a fucking flip phone. You'd sat on it, it would break. Now it's a supercomputer. You know what I mean? That's, this is what we do. So when you take that out, when you, you, communism basically cuts the balls off of society and the direction that we're going with more of these socialist programs, the things that we're doing, that's all it's going to do. It's going to subdue us. And I think things like this will help instigate a new, it'll help spark this new wave of life in the Western world. So yeah, it's going to be bumpy for a little while. And yeah, people are going to bitch and complain about the civil rights in other countries and how they treat people and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Look, these are different things. Economic stimulation and how your people are managed at home from civil rights, they're very different. And like I said, we are under the impression we have freedom and democracy here. We pay half our money to the government. And through COVID, I couldn't leave the fucking country. So give me a break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you want to talk about civil rights of other countries. Sure. Other countries around the world are discriminating on the basis of ethnicities or religions or whatever it may be. We're doing the exact same fucking shit here now with all this DEI bullshit. Yep. It's like, oh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Th- this, this whole concept of, like, oh, we're not discriminating against anybody. We're discriminating for people. It's like, you can't, th- those two things are interlinked. Yeah. You can't have one without the other, guys. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, I think it's going to, yeah, hopefully at least uh, get, get rid of some of these terrible ideas that we've been playing with over I the last I think they're going to fight it tooth and nail, but I don't think there's any other way through this. How do you maintain your competitive edge? And look, one of the things I'll point to that is, 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 a, is a good indicator that we're moving in that direction is there's a lot of governments in the world right now that are shifting towards conservative or Republican in the West, right? And you hear all this far-right populist stuff. I don't, first of all, I don't think people know what the word populist means. Anyway, that's fine. That's yeah. for another day. Um, but you're seeing all these people like complaining about it being far-right or Trumpism. It's like, no. What's happening is these people are going, we got to stop with the gender bullshit. We got to stop with the massive immigration. We need to start implementing rules that go against all this liberal, this, the liberal agenda because it's ruining our society. And the only thing that's instigating this right now is the fall of their own nations, which is great because individually they're going, hey, look, I don't care what the group's doing anymore. Fuck this. Which for me goes, once this BRICS alliance continues to grow and the West as a whole goes, we need to make some changes, there's already enough of these small pockets of countries that go, we're already making them get on board now, which I think will give it some momentum. So I really do think it's going to go that way. Yeah, I, I agree. Anything else you want to add for today, brother? No, that's it, man. Thanks, and uh, bye, everybody. See you next time.